Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Akshay Saksani. Akshay is co-founder and president of Avanti Learning Centres which provide low-income high school students a world-class science and mathematics education in India. It is a radical approach to teaching, with no trained teachers and very little conventional lecturing, and yet students perform at a par with some of the most expensive after-school programmes in the country. Avanti runs standalone centres in Mumbai, Delhi and Kampur, and in-school centres at the Chennai Corporation Schools. Hi Akshay, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. Maybe the best place to start would be tell me a little bit about Avanti, uh, where the idea came from and where you are today. What Avanti does is we run uh, science and math programs. So we teach physics, chemistry and math uh, in high school, so grades 11 and 12. We work with about 1,500 kids across the country, both within the public school systems as well as in uh, our own centres that are after school. Uh, the key innovation uh, that, we, that we are trying to push through uh, is a shift in, in how students learn from one a model that's very, very centered around teachers lecturing in classrooms to one where students can do a bulk of their learning themselves, mostly through reading things on their own, uh, working on problems themselves, but also, quite importantly, having a space and, and curricular structure uh, for them to collaborate together and work together on problem sets. Um, we found that uh, by creating curriculum that's very specifically designed to, in, to learning this way, uh, we are able to replace you know, highly trained teachers in classrooms uh, with coaches uh, or, or people who aren't really trained in, in the subject but are trained in classroom management. So we've been able to disaggregate you know, the two functions that teachers normally perform, uh, one being the subject expertise and the other uh, being you know, getting, managing the classroom well, inspiring kids. And by building a model where the subject expertise is essentially uh, replaced by our content, uh, we, we've been able to make this much, much cheaper. So our programs cost about a fourth of what you know, our competition costs in the marketplace. Uh, and so far have, you know, have matched or, or outperformed uh, even the most premium programs in the country. Uh, I think what's, what's starting to get quite exciting is, you know, is, is the fact that we're now starting to both uh, work within our own schools as well as uh, work with school teachers during the school hours and really change how they teach uh, rather than supplement how they supplement their teaching, which is, I think, uh, moving us towards really changing how education happens in classrooms at, at scale. Wow, it's a very exciting project, um, very exciting uh, um, what you're doing. And I suppose your goal is to, to uh, enlarge, to, to, to increase access to this kind of training, so I suppose that for uh, you need a certain amount of money to go into the traditional kind of um, tutoring services and so forth, which would exclude large swathes of the population, I suppose. So is there in some sense that your aim is to make this available to, to as many uh, students as possible? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know the, the goal really has to be to, to, you know, to change how teaching happens in schools uh, to be more effective. I mean, the big reason why after-school teaching exists is because most classrooms are really quite ineffective uh, at teaching these subjects. 
So what we really believe is, given that we can achieve fairly good results without subject experts, if we can really start to work with teachers in schools, uh, we can you know, significantly improve the quality of their instruction, thereby making after-school teaching rather redundant uh, for most children. Um, and if we can, and, and the, you know, one of the, uh, a stat I'd like to just sort of quote because it'll give you context here is, for instance, in Delhi, uh, which is which is where I am based, th there's about uh, 200,000 children who are in grade 11, of which only about 10,000 are picking the sciences. And that's a shockingly low number in a country like India. And the biggest reason it is is because most of these kids I don't believe that they can get access to any reasonable form of instruction in the sciences. So, you know, just by making it easier to learn science well, uh, I think we'll, we'll really increase the number of kids moving towards the sciences and how they perform in them. Wow, it's very, very, very exciting. I mean, I remember um, some time ago in INSEAD being part of a team looking at you know new learning uh, techniques and approaches to learning and visiting schools in America that were talking about collaboration and things. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, ideas about collaborative teaching, I suppose, have been around for a long time. What is it that you have worked out and what is it that you do that is different? Uh, you talked about you know, changing the curriculum and so forth. I mean, this has been an aspiration, I suppose, for you know, from many people in, within education. What, what have you learned about making it happen? So I think the, like our biggest innovation, I think it was driven more by necessity, was to not build this around a traditional teacher. Right, which is uh, we, we because we could not hire science and math teachers, we had to you know make this program work for people who had often no science training running these classrooms. So when we pushed ourselves you know into this down this path of saying you know can I make a program that someone with an, a bachelor's degree in the arts, uh, which allows someone with a bachelor's degree in arts to actually teach high school science and math. Uh, when, I, when I push myself to design that program and we find that we can, and not only can we do that, that's, that pairing of someone with no subject knowledge with our curriculum actually works just as well. I think that's really been the most uh, remarkable thing that we've found. Uh, that you know, good teaching is of, can actually be dis disaggregated from knowing the subject really, really well. Uh, so I, be, I believe that's really you know, been, been one of the keys uh, to us being able to do this, which is to, to not build this around the assumption that the person in the classroom knows a bunch. Right. What does that actually literally mean? I mean, it, this is, uh, is, is it implemented by software and has the software been designed with certain specific uh, you know, ideas behind it? Uh, no, it's, it's not implemented with software. It's actually mostly implemented in pen and paper. Uh, so I'll give you a sense of how our classrooms run, right? So in a traditional classroom, if you were to start a, a topic, you'd kind of come, most students would come to the class more or less blank, right? They'd be, there's obviously recommended reading, but most students won't do that. They come to class and someone spends about, you know, an hour, hour and a half per topic lecturing them. Uh, and teachers tend to vary in how they run these lectures. Some of them will make them more collaborative or interactive, but most would, you know, kind of just lecture what's in the textbook at them. Uh, the way we run our classroom is, uh, is, is firstly the students are, it's, it's made amply clear to the students that there is no teacher in the classroom when they come in, which means that there is no real hope of anyone telling them anything uh, if they don't prep and come to class. So they are expected to do a bunch of reading, they're also given uh, some video content that they can choose to watch uh, before coming to class. 
when they come to the classroom, we have you know segments of about thirty minutes, and these are roughly comprised of twenty minutes of um, of uh, of individual work and about ten minutes of of group work. So, for instance. One of those exercises would just be a set of five or six questions that are carefully sort of designed so that the kids can attempt them first by themselves and then spend another 10 minutes trying to you know, solve them as a group. Uh, another exercise we'd run would be uh, this thing we call the concept test where we would throw up a question on the screen. Uh, the, the students would all you know, think about it individually, vote individually, then discuss it and then vote again as a group and then they'd be, they're able to see how their thinking or understanding moved as a group. Uh, so similarly, there's a, you know there's these slots of about thirty minutes, and we do about four of them in in, in during the course of the topic uh, to get the students to a minimum sort of level within their group, and then they go back home and they do a, a set of problem sets that again have you know video solutions available with them. So the the we spend all the classroom time kind of focused on them applying knowledge uh, and 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 sort of posing problems for themselves so that they can do most of the knowledge gathering uh, either pre-class or post-class and we kind of use the classroom time focused on collaboration. Right, right, that's very interesting. I, does, it, does it entail or does it require a certain um, level of motivation um, in terms of, you know, what the students bring to it because they have to, I suppose, um, you know, be motivated to do this work themselves? I think it does to an extent. We work mostly with uh, with low income students or students who are you know not as economically privileged. Uh, also, I think in India there's this, there's the, there's a cultural context behind education where I think people tend to value it very very uh, heavily uh, in the middle class and lower middle class. So I do think our kids are on, are, are on average very motivated to do well at this test. Uh, so the, so that that's definitely true. Uh, do I also think that uh, part of it is, is 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 habit forming, which is uh, I think the students generally enjoy what they do in class, uh, and if what's driving them is their desire to look good in front of their peers, uh, I think that's often a stronger motivation to do pre-work than doing all of this in front of an authority figure. Right. So I think that's something we find works quite well in our favor. That the kids are you know eventually going to come to class and have to you know either you know, look good in front of their friends or look horrible. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's often a better motivator, as you know from, you know, from, from being in business school than, than, you know, the the authority figures. So that helps. But I do think our kids are on average quite motivated. Right, right. That's interesting. And what is your vision for, you know, Avanti in five years' time? So I really think, you know, that we need to, to I, I think that, you know, we need to get to close to about a million kids in 10 years. Um and, and by a million students, I mean a million students learning in this way. Um, so I think in the next five years, really, what we need to do is be able to templatize this a little bit more. I think our, our, you know, we're still very young. We're still learning how to do this better. Uh, as you alluded to before, I think we need to build more systems around this, you know, turn much of our pen, pen and paper processes into things that can be, you know, implemented on computers, uh, and then start to really scale, uh, you know, the pedagogy or scale the implementation of the pedagogy across the public schools and in our centers. We, we hope in 10 years we can get to a million kids. Uh, where we'll be in five years is that I, I don't really know yet. <laughs> right, right. It's, yeah, just the, the goal frame, the time frame you look at your goals, it's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you call yourself a social entrepreneur? And what does it mean to you to be a social entrepreneur? What inspired you? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so I think you're. 
both my co-founder and I kind of started this work primarily because we wanted to make sure that more kids had access to the same opportunities that we had. You know, Krishna and I both grew up fairly, you know, middle class. Uh, and I think because there's such a small number of, of, of good colleges in India, uh, and I, I think it goes hand in hand, and also because it's such a small number, the opportunities afforded to you if you manage to get into those colleges are pretty, are pretty uh, amazing. So, you know, really, to, if, if we can broaden access to quality science education, I think we will be able to really allow many, many students uh, access to the opportunity of significantly bettering their lives. I think it's, you know, I, I don't get very excited by, you know, families who are near the bottom of the pyramid seeing some incremental growth or earning, you know, a wage, because that's not really that exciting. I think what's really exciting is if you can take someone with potential who's, you know, at close to the bottom of the pyramid and allow them in the course of one generation to really, really, you know, change, dramatically change the, you know, the, the outcomes for themselves and their families. That for us is what's really exciting. And I, when we feel that in the Indian context, sort of access to a good college education can actually can do that for many, many children. So that's really what keeps us, you know, quite excited about doing this. And I think the other part of it is, yeah, is that you know what we are doing seems to be working, uh, and because the implications of this working at scale are quite large, even just you know making that happen is is quite exciting each day. Right, well, sounds sounds very exciting. Um, what was I going to say there? Um, the um, oh, I had something I wanted to say. Um, what 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 about um, the uh, early days when you were you know getting the project off the ground? Um, things were presumably uncertain uh, at certain times. I mean, what made you believe in its potential? So, so I think we we we, we made a um, quite a major pivot. I think a year and a half into or two years into Avanti's existence. When we started, uh, we were you know we, we were primarily putting these kids into other after school teaching programs. We were finding these children, putting them into other after school programs, and our entire organization was kind of built on mentoring. So we were mentoring these kids, uh, only to realize in about a year's time that, you know, the, the mentoring in itself, when we were still getting not great education in the after school programs was rather useless. Uh, so that, that was that was probably, you know, our the, the narrative of, of, of Avanti's history, where we, we realized like our first version of Avanti didn't quite work. Uh, I think what kept us going was, uh, I think part of it is, you know, we had, and this is again one of those, the implications of being in education, we had a cohort of kids who had enrolled with us or who we were responsible for, and it, we felt it was kind of our natural responsibility to at least see them through. So that was that was important. Uh, but I also I think what kept us going was that we still, we, I think inherently, we, we just always believe that there has to be a solution to this. And, uh, and we've always felt that we've been on the cusp of finding it. So I think it's a little bit of, uh, reckless optimism, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the bulk of it. Is we, we've always kind of felt that we can sort of do this. Uh, so even when it's not been great, we've been you know been able to plow through. <laughs> yes. Do you see yourself as is is it? Do you see yourself as disruptive entrepreneurs? I mean, do you think about the idea of disruption? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's, it's really exciting, right? Because I think you know more often. Uh, we, we get a lot of, you know, most social entrepreneurs get, you know, told a lot of great things about, you know, trying to save the world. But I think in many ways, what's really, really exciting is, is, is disrupting existing structures, right? There's this 
well entrenched and this is true of most of the world you know very well entrenched industry really of education and uh, both in the private sector and in the public sector that refuses to change continues to deliver really terrible outcomes and does nothing new really uh, on a macro level so the, the the ability to go wave results in people's faces that says look you know even when i ignore every single metric that you set as a standard for good education you know a trained teacher a large school you know playgrounds and infrastructure investments and i can still produce better or better outcomes than you i think that's just exciting the fact that you know that that the, the a new model for education could could look nothing like really what what was happening before um, and that we could play a role in in ushering in what the new kinds of schools would really look like uh, is very exciting. Well, it sounds very exciting. I mean, to come back to this, what is the quintessence, do you think? I mean, because people have been looking at this question for years. There's lots of, comp- I mean, it's, it's a big industry, isn't it? And there's lots of disruptive education this and disruptive education that. Um, but it seems like you have a, a, a proven formula, something that you're doing that works powerfully. Um, and how you know, in what way is that differentiated, would you say, from other approaches and, and other ways of, that other uh, uh, newcomers as well and startups are looking at this? Or is this something of an established, is there a, a group of companies, a wave that are working in the same way and a kind of established, uh, kind of uh, big, about to be established or in the process of being established way of looking at this? So I, I think the, the big difference, I believe, and this, I think is my personal criticism of a lot of innovation education, right? I think there's there's two fundamental desires. One is people actually keep looking for a silver bullet, that technology will somehow come and magically solve, you know, years of problems in education. Uh, I think, you know, we found that the bulk of our positive outcomes are driven by relationships between our coaches and the students. And that the, 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 the relationship between the person who's the authority figure or the guide or the mentor in the classroom and the child I still believe is the single biggest driver of academic outcome. So we could have, you know, significantly worse curriculum. We could have significantly or you know, less defined processes. But if we had good coaches and those coaches had good relationships with the students, we would still do well. Uh, but the reverse is not true. We could have the best system in the world. We could have adaptive testing and we could have great curriculum. But if we could not create sort of a nurturing environment, one that had empathy, one that you know got the kids inspired. Uh, and that's built mostly by people in those centers, all of that would be useless. Uh, and I think this, that really, I believe, is is the answer here, which is I don't think there is a technology solution to this problem. I don't think there's a people, people solution only. I think both will have to work together. But if I was forced to pick, I think the biggest one is, is the people part still. It's just that I think the people in the classrooms need to do different things. That's possible. So mm. and I think that's really where we've been able to be quite different. Where we, you know, we still we still believe the biggest part of what we do is is done by people in the centres, uh, and not so much by our curriculum. Well, that's fascinating. Um, so I suppose you've given quite a bit of consideration to the kind of uh, aptitude character of the of the people that are working in the classroom and hired people accordingly. I mean, what have you learned? about the kind of person that's best able to do this, their skills and the, the, the kind of context in which they work? One second. Uh, I had to come to the kitchen. People are filling water. So, <laughs> I'm to start talking. Uh, so, so I think the, 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 big, the biggest uh, attribute is really empathy. 
you know, with, with, with these children, because I think uh, when we look at who we hire, you know, there's a bunch of parameters around their awareness of, you know, of the, of the prep that the kids are going to engage in, their ability to um, deal with, you know, implement our processes and so on and so forth. But I think the biggest attribute is really their ability to empathize with children, form strong bonds with them, deal with, you know, the stresses that come with working with teenagers. So in, in many ways, sort of empathy, I believe, is the single most deterministic, you know, at personal attribute uh, for our for our facilitators or coaches. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, and what have been the biggest challenges then? What would you say are one or two of the biggest challenges you've faced on the journey? I think a couple. One is, I think, you know, just in terms of what we do, it requires students to make a, a quite significant mindset shift uh, from where they, you know, they've been used to being taught things, even if ineffectively, to being responsible for their own learning. So I think, especially because we work still in, with relatively older children, uh, bringing about that mindset shift, you know, for the entire class is, continues to be a little bit challenging. Um, it's getting easier with time as, you know, we establish a reputation and also, you know, we'll be moving to lower grades uh, in subsequent years. Uh, but, but that's been one big challenge. And the other one is also, has, as, as with most startups, been people, um, which is, you know, being able to hire fast enough because there's, there's a lot of demand for what we do. I think our biggest constraint is just being able to ramp our team up fast enough uh, and, and get people trained uh, to do this. Um, and I think uh, linked to that is the fact that given I told you that the biggest attribute is empathy, it's very hard to train for empathy. So, so hiring is a, is, a, is, a, is a big factor of success for us. And I think as we get better at potentially training for empathy, we'll, we'll, we'll become, we'll find ourselves able to scale much more easily. Right, right. A lot of uh, social entrepreneurs I've talked to talk about the, the difficulties uh, at the beginning, being alone um, and even working with co-founders, but um, building a uh, support network, building advisory board, things like that seem to be, you know, really important and really help chances of success. Can you tell me a little bit about what your experience was and how you went about that? Yeah, I think we were very lucky uh, in, in many ways. I think, you know, starting right from the beginning, you know, our first bunch of money came uh, from Stanford. We won a business plan competition there. And uh, Matt Flannery of Kiva, uh, who's in my mind one of the, you know, the most successful social entrepreneurs I know, uh, was my judge and ended up becoming, you know, one of my closest advisors. So I think we were very lucky to have Matt in the beginning. He knew nothing about education. Uh, but knew a lot about you know starting these kinds of businesses, so that was very useful. Um, along the way, we ended up you know uh, through a bunch of the fellowships we won, uh, meeting some great people. Um, our first investor was was also someone we met through Echoing Green. Uh, so so I think we were lucky in the sense that I think because we went through I believe a fairly traditional route of becoming social entrepreneurs, right? Where we won some business plan competition, then we got you know selected into a bunch of fellowships access to people who were interested in what we did has never really been hard for us. Uh, so we've been fortunate. But I, I do think you know, the, the one thing we've learned is it's very, you know, there'll be many, many people who want to be advisors. I think it's very important to pick, uh, uh, is, is to make sure that you, that you pick a small number and, and make sure that your interactions with them are rich as opposed to having you know, an advisory board of 40 people you hardly ever talk to. So I think that's been something we've learned uh, learned lessons around uh, with time. 
Right, right. It's interesting. Um, any other areas where you would have advise uh, other uh, you know entrepreneurs working in 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 education or these kind of uh, areas or social entrepreneurs? Um, you know, a few things that you think are important. I mean, clearly you 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 swim in these waters. You see, you you know, go to conferences, see social entrepreneurs around you. Are there a few things that, from your experience, that you would share and advise? Yeah, I think I think a couple of things that have been big lessons for us. I think the first is to be, uh, you know, to really be okay with the fact that many of our businesses will grow a little slower uh, than the conventional startup, right? And I think that's something which is, which especially for those who are for-profit entrepreneurs, is is something that's that's harder to get used to because it, the problems you're solving are are you know, un, are unstudied in many ways in education, especially. Uh, you know, our, our product cycles are effectively years long. So it, it takes a little bit of time to, to gather traction and understand what you're doing. And it's important to be patient um, in, in, our, in our work. I think the other uh, is really to focus on finding, you know, a good team early. Uh, because I think for us, you know, much of our ability to get anything done has been, you know, hinged upon uh, our first few employees, you know, who've, who've come in, they've figured out how to do this, they've gone and hired the next tier of people or the next, next lot of people. And I think if we'd done, if we hadn't done a good job of hiring our first few employees, I think we would have been in a very different place right. uh, at this point. Right, right. And, and um, you mentioned Echoing Green and there are, are more organizations today certainly around to support uh, social entrepreneurs. Are there a few resources um, books, um, organizations that you you think are helpful for social entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I think you know every almost everyone we've been associated with, which is you know Echoing Green very early, uh, the Great Richards Kaplan Foundation a little bit later, uh, Ashoka. Uh, all, all three of them, I think, are incredible networks. They're all quite different from each other, but are very very helpful from everything from you know figuring out your governance, to raising money, to finding an advisory board, to hiring people. I think that's been very, very useful. Um, I think on, on the topic of social entrepreneurship, uh, I, I, I don't have many books to recommend. Uh, Krishna does most of, my co-founder does most of the reading of the two of us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I think, I, I do think the one important thing is that I, I do believe that, you know, uh, it's important to recognize that much of what we, especially for those who are building for-profits, uh, that we are building businesses. So I, I think it's important to read as much about uh, running companies or understand how, as much as possible about running companies as it is to understand social impact. Uh, and there's often a, a challenge of, of uh, deprioritizing one in favor of the other, which, which we run. Um, but yeah, but that would be my, my advice would be to, you know, to even if it, in small capacities, get involved with the organizations that have large networks of social entrepreneurs because much of my, the best learning I've had has come from other people who've done this before uh, and less so from people who are experts in the field. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, uh, oh gosh, it's just gone again. I was going to... Um, you mentioned, um, yeah. You you mentioned the, the this the question of profit and for profit and so forth, and it can be a a tricky topic for some social entrepreneurs. It's quite a loaded idea. Um, and uh, how how do you think about profit? How would you advise social entrepreneurs to best think about profit in the context of what they're doing? I think I, I would I obsess about it. I think you know the the most important thing to recognize is 
there is no free capital in the world uh, if if you're a for profit. Right? I think there's you know it's easy to get lulled into believing that there's you know very patient capital that doesn't really demand return. Uh, but much of that capital comes at the cost of equity, and you will end up not owning much of your company very quickly if your company doesn't make money. So, so I think it's it's very very important to if if we if one is to go down the for profit route, uh, then I think it's important to recognize that you are building a business uh, first, uh, and you will need to you know show healthy cash flows and the potential for making money uh, if, if it is to succeed. Um, I think the the best check and balance on making sure that, that does not come at cost at the cost of uh, of your of one's initial goal is to just make sure that the product we're delivering continues to be one which has significant social gain. Right. So it, I think it's a little easier to say that when you're an education company because it's hard to design an education product that's harmful or not helpful uh, if it works. Uh, but I, I think it's it, my, my view on this and it might be a little extreme is that if you are a for profit, then you are a company first. Uh, and you must make sure that you optimize the act of making money, uh, because that's going to determine how much, how, how long you control what you do. Right. It's it's interesting. I mean, how do you look at that? I suppose. Oh, some noises there. Um, Sorry. Yeah. How do you balance? I mean, some people talk. About, <laughs> uh, how, Wait, I don't know yeah. why there's so much sound. It's not much around me. So oh, well. it sometimes picks up weird sounds. Um, don't worry. Um, you know, people talk about mixing projects and having a you know for-profit with not-for-profit projects and one funding the other and so forth. And there's also you know uh, many social entrepreneurs talk about the danger of you know uh, needing of, of of moving upstream so that the poorest segments of the community are. Uh, end up not being served because there are fatter margins, um, you know, in other demogra- you know, wealthier demographics and so forth. Is that not a real risk? No, I think it's a very real risk, but I think it's a question of, uh, I, I think that also happens when, uh, I, I, think that's, I, I think the easiest way to resolve it is, is if you, uh, so I, I'll give you my own example, I think it's hard to address this without specific examples. You know, I think we obviously have fatter margins uh, the further up market we go, uh, but at the same time, we also have probably very, very quickly waning demand. Uh, the further up up market we go in terms of income, because if our product is designed to be affordable and scale, right? Because I think if you are a social enterprise, uh, the the products we design have to be products that you know are affordable and many and are usable by many many people. Uh, so we're in the low margin, high scale business. Uh, it's it's not easy to sell that product to someone at a much higher margin. So in many ways, I think the the, the product you put out there will determine who buys it. I think if people uh, if if you get find yourself in a situation where it's much easier to go up market and sell it for more money, it probably means that your product is designed for that in some shape or form. And I think at that point in time, it's important to make the to either decide that you know. It's not interesting to make money in that segment, or or live with the fact that you one would work with you know the middle income segment for a period of time, and as the product gets cheaper, the the lower income segments are going to be the bulk of the consumer base. Because I think trying to force it, uh, it force a product that's more profitable as a business for for people who can pay more down downstream is just not really going to work uh, in the marketplace. So. Perhaps I sound a little cynical when I say this, but I think it's just you know if 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 you if one is finding that the product is more easily saleable, 
to, to richer people and is a better business in the sense that you're also getting more scale there, then the product isn't really designed for the, for, for the lower income segments. Right. That is interesting because people talk about this idea of design, designing the, uh, you know, your business to be scalable um, right from the beginning. I mean, have you any thoughts on that? I think it's hard to do. I think it's very hard to say to, you know, when you, when, when one, especially in these sorts of problems, it's very hard to say that my business will be designed to scale upfront. Because I think, again, that's something that's gotten borrowed a lot from the technology sector where people, you know, well, that's of course what one should do with a web product. Uh, but if you're, if you're delivering services, as many social entrepreneurs do, I think it's very hard to find precedent in the world where someone said, you know, I'm, a, I'm starting a services startup that is going to do one thing and one thing only and then build it so it scales to millions of people. I find, I have rarely found uh, an example of this. I think what tends to happen with services businesses is you build a service, you, 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 know, you, you scramble and you get business the first few years. Uh, and then the product evolves to the point where, at some stage, you believe you found an answer. Um, because I think if you, if one, and we, 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 I think went through this ourselves, where you know, I think for the for the early phases, we were very obsessed with trying to, you know, just focus on scaling one particular product. Uh, but because the product's constantly evolving, uh, it basically becomes a choice of saying, am I going to scramble and get what business I can for the product I have, and then fix the product? Or am I going to be very stubborn about saying this is the product I'm building, this is who I'm selling it to, uh, and stay the course? And I think that each of, is, a, is a call each entrepreneur has to take. Where the, the second approach is, is more fraught with risk, I believe. Uh, and I think we, you know, as social entrepreneurs, we stop being fashionable pretty soon. I think three years, four years into what we're doing, it's not the most exciting thing for people to back. So it's important to realize that you know it's much easier raising your first round of funding than your second and your third. So it's important to be practical when doing business and saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and make this business sustainable first by whichever means are necessary, uh, and then you know get get involved with scaling. Of course, I, I like I said, I think if the technology businesses, it's very different. But in service businesses, it's hard to you know, design for scale upfront because you don't know what your service is. Wow. Yes. Excellent. That's you've laid that out very clearly. Um, so, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, this morning I'm just dro dropping all the questions. I was um, this question of yeah, um, yeah, p p pivoting. Um, so um, you know, it's an idea which is well established now in Silicon Valley, and uh, and also you know ideas around the lean startup and so forth. Is there potential, do you think, for these ideas to be more widely applied in the world of social enterprise and social uh, social business? And what what insights do you have about uh, pivoting and thinking about responding in and changing in time? I think I'm a big believer in that. I think you know we we've seen it ourselves, which is because we didn't you know build a lot of scale around the first model we did, and this sort of leads leads back to my previous answer which is in a service business as we are, and I think in most social businesses, uh, I think it takes a few years to really understand what the problem is. Uh, I think when we all write our first business plans, we all feel that we've really understood you know, what we're trying to solve. But as we start doing it, you know, I think it takes years to really get a good handle on what the issue is, what the problem is, and what we're really trying to do about it. Um, so I, I think being able to, to keep yourself in a stage where you can pivot quickly is very, very important. Uh, in our own example, you know, we had close to 100 children, about 400 volunteers in our first model. Uh, it was large, but it was not so large that it was hard for us to change what we did. 
Um, so when we realized we had to start teaching and we saw good evidence to it, uh, we were able to do that relatively easily. Uh, and because not too many people had invested too much money into the first model, uh, they were also okay with us changing what we did. So I think keep being agile and you know not scaling something too much before you know it works, I think are very, very important and very akin to the sort of lean startup and philosophy that the Valley's used, I think startups in the Valley have used for a while. Right, right, excellent. I'm nearly there. I'm mindful of the time, actually. Um, it, it is very interesting, though, and I'm sure it'll be very helpful for other social entrepreneurs. Um, and this is probably a difficult question to answer, but uh, in terms of uh, framing the, 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 the way you're grow- building your business, I mean, clearly there are a couple of things that come out of this that are really important. And one is, um, you know, thinking about pivoting, clearly, and thinking about, you know, learning, I suppose, um, and, and responding over time. And also this question of um, balancing, you know, social and business, uh, you know, impact. So, you know, thinking about that, it's it, it, it seems quite challenging in a way to, to you know, you're trying to uh, not necessarily maximize, but balance, uh, you know, very different uh, kinds of uh, priorities. Um, what have you learned about doing that? I think my my biggest learning is to set boundaries. Uh, it's easier to set you know set thresholds rather than constantly evaluate everything that's happening. So I think for in in my own mind and this and I, I and my caveat here is that this changes uh, periodically as we learn more. But in my own mind, there's certain boundaries around you know what I can or cannot do uh, with respect to the impact of my product, and there are certain things I can or cannot do around my business. Um, so for instance, I think there's you know, the, the lower bound on the business is I, can, I will not do programs that, uh, or, or start branches of the business that lose money constantly. Right? So that's a natural bound on business. Yes. Uh, and there is no upper bound because you should make as much money as you can. Uh, on the social end, I think there's, there's clearly a lower bound on saying that you know I will not uh, deliver a program that's fundamentally hurt, hurtful or misleading to children. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so that's you know, that's a clear lower bound. I think another is that I will not have more than a certain percentage of my of my customer base be above a certain income level. I think as long and that's really sort of the the, the two bounds, three three bounds we set ourselves. And unless we feel that we are transgressing on those bounds, uh, we can pretty much do whatever we like. And it's easier to deal with that than constantly have to, you know, uh, evaluate and reevaluate what one is doing, because that's really really stressful. Uh, that's, that's that's very interesting. Um, is that something that you've just uh, evolved yourself, or is it something you've seen established elsewhere? It, it's been hard to find precedents because there's a very small community of for-profit social businesses, uh, and most of them are very young. Um, so I think this is something which we've we've had to evolve for ourselves through talking with many people who you know who are in the same boat as us. Mm. Uh, and I feel, I know I know of most most for profit businesses I know in the social space. Uh, I think tend to do is do something similar, where you know it's easier to communicate boundaries to employees to through throughout the organization than um, than try and you know constantly have this debate and evaluative process going on. Right, right. That's very interesting. And then, and what, what you know, clearly, um, you know, the business is going very well. There are obviously days which are difficult days and there are moments where things you know certainly in the early stages don't seem to uh, be working out what keeps you going when things are difficult well, I, I think it's 
it's it's a possibility of what it could be right it's like it's it's the optimism i think in many ways where you know i think most of uh, most of what we hear or the feedback we get is often negative right because when you're a young startup uh, i would say 9 out of 10 things we try don't work <laughs> or don't at least don't work as well as we thought they would work um so i think you know the the uh, the thing that keeps most of us going is really just is just the fact that you know in the one in 10 chance that it really does work it's so exciting that you know we we're constantly somehow searching for 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 that moment of you know of, of clarity or joy so i think it's it, it is optimism um and i think the other part is also that we do see you know when we do see outcomes it's important to keep reminding oneself of what, of the successes we've had to date because i think we have helped a lot of children and i think is you know each time we're kind of down thinking back to the kids we actually made a difference for is is again reassuring and and, and helpful Right, right. You touched on a topic there, and this is the last question: is about failure and an attitude to failure. A little bit comes from that. Um, you know, how important is that for you know? Everyone says in, in in you know for entrepreneurship and for business, you know, cultures of embracing failure and learning, you know, fast and so forth. Do you think um, you know are social entrepreneurs good at this? And how 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 do you need to frame that in in a way that's useful so that you can actually um, you know innovate? I, I think you know. I I can't make a general comment on social entrepreneurs. I don't think I know enough any enough of them uh, to, to do that. But I do think that uh, I, I think it's important to recognize that we will fail. Like our, our, the odds are against us, right? In terms of what we do, um, one in ten startups, like for-profit startups, succeed, and they're often solving less difficult problems than we are. So at the onset, we've signed up for a task that we are more than likely to fail at. Uh, So the only reason we should be doing what we are doing is is in search of that you know one in twenty one in thirty chance that we actually you know fundamentally transform the world. So as long as you you know we we're cognizant of the fact that those were our odds when we started, and anything which puts our odds at less than a hundred one in twenty or one in thirty is actually good news. Uh, it's easy to stay a little bit more cheerful about uh, where we are. That's been uh, fascinating, actually. It'll be very interesting to learn firsthand. <laughs> The, from your your experience and uh, Avanti seems to be doing great work and I wish you the very best of success. Thank you so much, Fogel. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.
Yes, abs absolutely. Yeah. 